This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are joined by special guest, Andrew DeCourt, author of Flourishing on the Edge of Faith. He holds a PhD in religious and political ethics and is the founder of the Neighbor Love Movement and the Institute for Faith and Flourishing. Andrew has taught at a variety of universities around the world, and he and his wife, Lily, live and work between Ethiopia and Chicago. Andrew, welcome to the show. Brent, it's so good to be here. Thanks for your hospitality on Bema. Of course, yeah. And if you want to add anything more, uh, you know, it's pretty bare bones introduction that I give. Um, and I think we're going to talk a lot about your life experiences throughout the episode. But if there's anything you want to immediately add to what I said, um, it'd be great to to hear from from your voice on that. Yeah, I love Jesus, Brent. I love people. And I love honest conversation about faith and being human. I also love writing, obviously, with this book. And in all of this, I love my wife, Lily. Um, we met in Ethiopia 16 years ago, got married 13 years ago, and our journey has been a wild ride of learning to live and love across our cultures ever since. So we, we're we grateful to be together and to be able to love. So I'm super excited about this conversation we're about to have. I can remember when Kate uh, Schmigal, she she emailed me. We we interviewed Kate a while ago with Bittersweet, and I just knew how connected she was to amazing stories due to the nature of what she does and said, Kate, you've got to, when, when you know there are great people doing great work out there, you got to let me know. And so she's connected us with some of the people we've been able to to interview. And she emailed me not too long ago, and she said, you know who you need to talk to next? is Andrew DeCourt. He's written this book. We're actually publishing it through Bittersweet. I'm going to send you a copy. Um, and and it, it was just a great experience, which I'll talk some more about later. But Andrew, you've got to work with some of my favorite people on this book. Um, Kate and what she does at Bittersweet, just... Uh, and then Peter Hartwig, you say, was your editor. He, I'm dragging him through North Carolina on my book tour. He's going to be my travel buddy uh, through that whole state. He's one of my favorite friends. Just what were some of the things that you uh, enjoyed working with Bittersweet compared to other? Because you've done other projects. You've written other things. Like you've got a pretty wide experience. Talk about just your experience with Bittersweet and this particular project. Yeah, Marty. These are some of my favorite people, too. I have immense respect and deep love for Kate Schmidgall, for Peter, and for the whole Bittersweet team. And what I've observed is this, that who they are and what they do reflects excellence, elegance, and authentic love, Marty, from the initial conversation to publishing Peter's outstanding edits, recording the audiobook, um, creating beautiful artwork to illustrate what this, this book is trying to say, and then launching the book out into the world. And one of my favorite moments in the publishing journey with Kate and Bittersweet was right from the beginning. The book was rooted in our friendship and shared values. And when Kate asked me to publish Flourishing on the Edge of Faith, Marty, we didn't talk first about money or publishing strategy mm -hmm. or even the book itself. Mm -hmm. We talked about the values that we wanted to animate and guide our partnership. And so before we signed a contract, we signed a covenant with each other outlining four practices that we were committed to. And those were total honesty, open communication, authorial freedom, and enduring relationships. And so mm. these these four values have really animated the whole publishing process. And it's been one of the most sacred, God-filled, 
prayer answering impossibility shattering experiences of my life. So I'm extremely grateful to Kate and Bittersweet. I did not expect the content of that answer, but I am not surprised either that you guys would have like that's just so great. That's exactly that's so awesome. I love it. So it, it you've written a few books before, but if if I'm looking at them correctly, it seems like they're uh, like academic textbook kind of things or or is there other stuff that I didn't realize that you've also written. So I wrote a monograph on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his ethics of making new beginnings after devastation. And that is a much more academic book, Brent. And then I've published, I published a semi-weekly newsletter called Stop and Think and some different book chapters and popular articles. Um, so like foreign policy articles to, I just have a new article, article out with Comment Magazine now. So uh, flourishing is my second book. The first is, is Bonhoeffer. Okay. So what maybe attracted you to bittersweet, um, like it being their first book, like, were you, were you intrigued to explore, um, the idea of like starting a publishing house together or, was it just the relationship uh, with the people there, or maybe it was a particular kind of experience that you had that lined up mm. uh, with the things that Bittersweet is doing? Like, what what was the connection? What what brought you guys together and made you want to to work on this as a unit? Yeah, well, there's a few things in there, Brent. Um, the first is that Kate is one of my dearest friends, and her husband Dave is one of my dearest friends. I would trust them with my life, and. As you know, when you're writing, you are pouring out your soul onto the page with as much integrity, as much honesty, as much truthfulness as you can. And so having a high level of trust in the integrity of the partnership was essential, and that was absolutely rock solid. It couldn't have been stronger. I also had mm -hmm. enormous trust in the excellence of everything that Kate and Bittersweet do from the formatting of the book, the artwork, the audio quality of the audiobook, the, the layout of the digital copy. Um, I, I knew from the start that Kate and her team would bring the very, very best, and they did. I think that um, I'm obviously biased, but when I received the book and held it in my hands for the first moment, I was like, this is perfect, and this is what Kate promised, and this is what she delivered, and... Uh. I also love New Beginnings. So uh, when I was teaching at Wheaton College, I developed a new program there with some colleagues focused on Ethiopia that was unprecedented at the school to go from the classroom studying Ethiopian history to immersing ourselves in dozens of seminars with local Ethiopian leaders on the ground in Ethiopia. Um, the Neighbor Love Movement was, was a new project as well. Um, so I love these these new starts. My research on Bonhoeffer was focused on how do you make new beginnings. And so I thought publishing with people that I deeply love and trust and it being their very first book was something that I was excited about. Mm. So you, you mentioned a lot of things in there, uh, Andrew, about just the things that you've done outside of just the 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 publishing work itself with Bittersweet. Like you talk about your time in Ethiopia. I wonder if we can, mm -hmm. it, it leads me to ask this question of like, of all the things you've done, because you've done a few things between your academic work or your ministry domestically or your time in 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 Ethiopia or, you know, starting the neighbor love movement, which is even you know bigger than that. What's some of the most compelling either either the time you look and I don't know how you would answer that, but what is mm. what is some of the most compelling work and ministry that you've been a part of and maybe 
why is that the thing that gripped you? Is it is it what you're currently in? Is it the present moment? Or is it what, what would be some of the things that come to mind with that? Well, the neighbor love movement definitely comes to mind, Marty. So I had transitioned from a PhD program at U Chicago and teaching at Wheaton College to become a professor of Ethiopia, in Ethiopia, um, teaching theology and ethics at a seminary there. And during this time, um, Ethiopia was going through massive national crisis. We were seeing increasing public executions, hundreds of thousands of people being displaced from their homes, the government imposing a nationwide state of emergency. Uh, we didn't know it at the time, but this was really the beginning of conflicts that would break out into Ethiopia's devastating civil war. And at that time, I transitioned from being a professor to starting the neighbor love movement with Lily and my Ethiopian partner, Tekele Nega. And what we wanted to do, Marty, was to travel Ethiopia in person and online and share the message that the other person is not your enemy. They are your neighbor. And what we meant by that is that the other person is connected to you and has precious value in the eyes of God. And Ethiopia is an immensely religious society. Research indicates that around 98% of Ethiopians answer that religion is very important to them. But we saw this epidemic of othering spreading throughout the country and fueling this violence. And what we mean by othering is just seeing the other person as unrelated or less than yourself, maybe because of ethnic identity or political affiliation or their religious belief. And we wanted to travel and speak and inspire Ethiopia's 70 million youth to say, if you're a person of deep faith, your faith calls you to see the other as your neighbor and to commit yourself to their well-being. And so we designed what's called the Neighbor Love Covenant. It's just like a 50-word statement of personal commitment to see and treat the other person as your neighbor. And then that's connected to seven embodied practices for how you do neighbor love right there in your body, in your relationships with other people. This was compelling work uh, because I don't Number one, it's compelling because Jesus said, when you love your neighbor, you will flourish. That's a promise that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 10, verse 28. And that was intersecting with one of the most devastating crises in Ethiopian history. And to be honest, I don't know if there's ever been a movement in Ethiopian society before that's been single-heartedly focused on challenging other othering with this vision to, to love the other as a neighbor. And really, I mean, the book that I've written, Flourishing on the Edge of Faith, comes out of that energy of trying to rediscover what is fundamental about our faith in a time of crisis, and how do we actually practice it in our daily lives? So it's not just floating around in our heads or being echoed by our lips, but it's really being encoded and lived in our embodied daily life. Yeah. I, I, and it did. It served as this, uh, this deep backdrop, like where everything in the book is rooted. And yet it it's so like the principles you're talking about are so transcendent out of just uh, like your context in the, that Ethiopian context. Like it was just such a, mm-hmm. uh, the book was fantastic. When I started reading it um, and I saw what you were doing, I was like, okay, here's another book on the Lord's prayer. Some of my favorite books are on the Lord's prayer. 
Hmm. There's a million of them. Man, do we need another book on the Lord's Prayer? What could, what could Andrew possibly say that's new? But you've written what might be my favorite book on the Lord's Prayer here. Wow. Uh, it's not a book on like the history or the content of the prayer. You're taking the prayer of Jesus and you're using it as a template for, I mean, I, I believe you just referenced those, those seven those seven principles that you referenced earlier. It's the Lord's Prayer serves as a template for spiritual formation and action. It's yeah. it's unbelievably practical. It's deeply subversive and provocative without being abrasive. Um, hmm. Like it can cha- like this, not just the book, like not the book as a book, but like the ideas you're 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 pulling together for us and 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 systematizing for us could change a person or even a community of faith. Uh, I just I. Uh, I just love it. Where did the idea come from? Did, like you talked about those seven principles. Did those take, did those like take place? Did those take shape first? And then you saw them in the Lord's prayer. Was the Lord's prayer the thing that drove you to those seven principles in Ethiopia? Like oh. what was the, what was the cart horse chicken egg situation <laughs> there? And how did those things relate? Yeah. Thank you, Marty. I'm encouraged by, by your words. Um, it was really driven in many ways by Jesus prayer and I've got a lot of thoughts here so let me see let me see if I can lay them out the first thing I'd say Marty is that Jesus lived one of the most beautiful compelling lives in history but he was acutely familiar with the conflict I just described in mm-hmm. Ethiopia and that we see growing in the US he was a massacre survivor he was a child refugee he grew up as an as a youth in obscure rural village under military occupation and then after Jesus goes public with his movement, he's almost immediately rejected, labeled as a dangerous heretic, and haunted with death threats. And of course, we know the end, that Jesus is arrested, tortured, and then he's, he's killed. And yet all throughout Jesus' life, we see the most remarkable beauty, resilience, and flourishing. He, was, he had the most tender, intimate vision of God. He hears mm. God say to him, You're my beloved child. I delight in you. He crosses cultural boundaries with compassion and embraces all of the wrong people in his society, women, foreigners, the demonized and discarded. Jesus taught the most radical ethic in human history, love your enemies. He challenges us to see precious value in others that his society saw as cheap or worthless. And Jesus also had this incredible emotional honesty. He's able to weep in public over the death of his Mm, friend, mm. and he's able to talk about his anguish in the face of death. And yet Jesus still has this astonishing peacefulness and composure in his life. When he's arrested, he practices this premeditated nonviolence. He doesn't mirror the anger and aggression that's swirling around him. And then the peak of this flourishing for me is that When Jesus is publicly executed, he proclaims forgiveness over his killers. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He offers this unkillable hope to the victim next to him. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then Jesus confesses his trust in God. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so what looked like this tragic end was the beginning of resurrection and the most successful social movement in history. And my question is, how did Jesus do this? How did he live this flourishing life? And I think a crucial key is found in Jesus' prayer. Mm -hmm. Jesus was practicing internalizing 
and embodying a specific spiritual consciousness that formed him into this person. It wasn't some kind of random or magical coincidence. Jesus entered into practice that became permanent in his life, and Jesus himself gave us this clue. He says in the teaching where he gives this prayer that when we practice his words, our lives will become like a home built on bedrock that doesn't fall apart in the storms of life. So I've been praying Jesus' prayer, Marty, for 20 years, and as I've sunk deeper and deeper into it on a daily basis, I see that its seven movements distill much of Jesus' life and what we need to flourish with Jesus, even through intense uncertainty, conflict, and suffering. And if and if I can just develop a little bit what I was saying about my experience in Ethiopia, when when this book was really taking shape in my heart and mind, I was receiving countless death threats in Ethiopia. And we saw that when you love the, the enemy and make peacemaking in conflict the heart of your mission, many people feel threatened and assume that you have some kind of malicious hidden agenda. And this turned into the most intense, emotionally distressing season of my life. There were powerful religious and political pundits who were assassinating my character. This fallacious documentary was released about me claiming that I was working to destroy Ethiopia. I started getting messages from people saying that they were going to slaughter my body or run me over with cars or throw me off a bridge. And I'll never forget, Marty, that at night, Lily started sliding this big flower pot in front of our apartment door before we went to bed so that if someone picked our lock and tried to come in and attack us, we would hear the pot fall over and break so that we could be ready to cry out for help. And what I saw um, throughout this very, very distressing experience was that Jesus' prayer Uh, became my daily, even hourly meditation. And it was my center of gravity, my oxygen, and my compass. And I found that it unlocked and centered in my consciousness God's unconditional love, a mindset of radical forgiveness and nonviolence, and an orientation of ultimate surrender to God's goodness. And so I wrote the book, um, I wrote in the book, Marty, that prayer works, but it primarily works on us. And when we pray these seven movements of Jesus' prayer, they're sculpting our consciousness, transforming our character. And I saw that Jesus' words were actually trustworthy, that this prayer was a kind of bedrock and breath that could permeate and suffuse and sustain my life through this incredibly difficult season. I mean, it's really lasted for almost three years now. And so this is why I wrote the book was, I think we've almost entirely lost the brilliance and power and radicality of Jesus' prayer. And I wanted to invite people to enter back into the flourishing that Jesus himself embodied by re- by rediscovering the, tr- the prayer that he designed and practiced. And that I think is really essential to the kind of flourishing that we see when we study the life of Jesus to this day. So yeah, I, 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 sorry, Brent, I'm going to let you, I promise I'll let you ask a question after this, but I loved like the thing that I, the thing that I think I kind of geeked out about all of this was like, there's this academic conversation that goes back a, a handful of decades 
like James Charlesworth wrote about it. Like, what was the consciousness of Jesus? Like, mm. what did Jesus think about himself? What did he? And it's not that it's all academic, but it's very connected to like, but but here you pose like the same kind of conversation, but it was like, what was the thing that Jesus like committed him? Like, do we see Jesus's own spiritual formation? Like the things that he intentionally, consciously meditates and devotes himself to in his prayer life through his, through his prayer. My favorite part of the book mm-hmm. is you had this line about how Jesus premeditated nonviolence. Mm. And when I, when I read it the first time, I was like, oh, wow, that's a great line. And then I stopped and I went, no, wait a minute. And then you told your own story about how, how, and you referenced it just a moment ago, you, you had to pre, when you're getting death threats, when you're, when you're living with this like unbelievable, legitimate insecurity of what could happen today and tomorrow, like you're having to premeditate, you are not just going to like in the moment hope that you fall into nonviolence. Mm-hmm. You you have to be, and that that idea, I, I was just, that idea blew me away. And the fact that I could see like, well, of course, Jesus prayed into this every morning because this is everything that, that God had given him to do. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have to like, uh, of course, he would have to premeditate. And yet I had never considered that was just a, a phenomenal observation, and I loved it. Thank you so much, Marty. You know, I think we forget that Jesus was a craftsman. Mm. He was an artist. He was a designer. And he he learned not to make things by accident, but with precise intentionality and design. And so when we get this prayer from Jesus, it comes deeply out of his own experience of craft, design, mm. intentionality, practice. And you're referring there to the sixth practice that Jesus gives us, which I call a practice of premeditated nonviolence. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. You know, one of the greatest temptations that we humans face is to mirror what we hate. Mm. You insult me, I insult you back. I intimidate you, you intimidate me back. We attack you, you attack us. You know, We see it woven into some of our neurobiology with mirror neurons. And this mirroring is the logic of escalation. We constantly need to hit back harder to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we confess our faith that violence can save us. And yet we see how this pattern so easily spins out of control, produces chaos, and leaves us asking, how did things get so bad? And In this sixth movement, this penultimate movement of Jesus' prayer, he teaches us to open ourselves to God in vulnerable presence and to pray, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I see this as premeditated nonviolence because Jesus is challenging us to face our fears. Temptation is coming. These high-stress fight-or-flight situations are part of being human And so will we face this head on, Hmm. process the anticipatory grief and anguish and fear, and decide in advance that we won't mirror and escalate violence? Or will we hide from this painful reality, remain unpremeditated in situations of conflict, and then tumble into the trap of temptation with, you know, our fight or flight reaction spinning out of control? And 
Marty, I'm so amazed by Jesus' courageous, mature sobriety. He's probably around 30 years old, which is just extraordinary maturity to me. Um, And he's saying high conflict situations are coming. You're going to be tempted to fall into temptation to become the thing that you hate. So start Mm. premeditating now Mm -hmm. nonviolence. Talk to God and others about your fears. Become self-aware of your emotions and choose, I don't want to walk into the old beaten path of mirroring one another's stress, fear, and aggression. Mm. I can pray, deliver us from evil. I choose to be present. And Marty, I think this is exactly what we see Jesus doing in his own personal practice in the final hours of his life. Um, He's like a laser-focused coach in crunch time. You know, we hear him saying to his disciples, stay awake and pray. Why? So you don't fall into temptation. Your spirit may be willing, but your bodies are vulnerable. And I mean, in other words, it's like Jesus is saying, this is about to get really painful. So premeditate nonviolence. And of course, we know the story. The disciples fall asleep. And so when the armed militia shows up, some of them start trying to kill people and some of them run for their lives. Mm. And we see the same pattern in our own mm. lives, that when we're unpremeditated, we either end up getting trapped in fighting or, or flight. But Jesus shows us this other way, Marty. I mean, for me, I've been reading the Gospels my entire life, but this has truly stopped me in my tracks. Jesus is getting arrested by an armed militia. They're threatening his life, and he's extraordinarily present. He's unconformed to threats, and he's a presence of peace, even in the face of this terrible injustice. And so, yes, I think in this sixth movement of his prayer, he's inviting us into this premeditated nonviolence that he himself was able to practice to the very end of his life. And I think that this is what Jesus is offering to us to be able to practice in these incredible, stressful moments of our lives. Well, not convicting at all. So uh, (laughs) I'll sit here and be quiet now. And Brent, good luck. (laughs) Uh, I do have I do have several questions built up, I think. I, I'm curious what drew you to Ethiopia in the first place. What what was your connection there? I mean, you met you met your wife there now, but um, so I mean, your connection is solidified. But what what drew you there in the first place? Like what what was the the thing that grabbed you that um, really intertwined your life um, mm. with this nation and this group of people? Yes, I love Ethiopia. I respect Ethiopia. And I'm extremely grateful for the last 19 years of my life that's been lived in relationship with Ethiopia. I first traveled to Ethiopia in 2004 when I was a college student. I did an internship at a place called the Mercy Center. It was a social center for vulnerable women and and youth with a feeding program, with clothing, with uh, economic support and empowerment. And I was deeply moved by Ethiopia, and it brought together several of my deepest passions. One, there was this incredibly rich history of Christianity. Ethiopia is one of the first um, kind of officially Christian nations in the world in the fourth century. Um, There's this incredibly rich culture with um, just extraordinary scripts and architecture and texts and 
just incredibly diverse traditions in Ethiopia going back thousands of years, there's also these really challenging problems of poverty and cyclical conflict and human suffering. Um, so it was this it was this weaving together of deep faith in in Christ, this ancient history and complex African cultures and this confrontation with human suffering and the question of how can we embody our faith when there's extraordinary pain and loss and difficulty. Um, and so ever since that first experience in 2004, uh, I felt like Ethiopia was part of my home. And then when Lily and I met in 2007 and got married in 2010, I mean, my family became Ethiopian and our lives were covenanted together um, for the rest of my life. And so I, I really see Ethiopia as part of my home, part of my family. And like all homes and families, we have a complex relationship. But I, <laughs> yes. I continue to um, give thanks for Ethiopia and express the dignity, the beauty, the brilliance of Ethiopian peoples and the possibility for sustainable peace and human flourishing in Ethiopia. Well, and perhaps notably, you say 20 years of practicing the Lord's Prayer and 19 years in Ethiopia. So mm -hmm. um, kind of a, a one-two punch mm -hmm. there, um, mm -hmm. setting you up for your time there, I think. Yes. Yes. Um, so I, I think and there's so many unbelievable stories in the book, um, and unbelievable not in the, like, you can't believe it, but in the, just the immensely powerful sort of way. Um, like, I, I think of... Um, reading the story, it, it, do you say his name? Ayob? Ayob, yes. Yeah, Job. Job, it's the Amharic name for Job, Ayob. Yeah. So reading his story, I I was just weeping mm. um, uncontrollably. I was weeping when I was writing it. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know how you could not. Um, and I, I just wonder like those, those stories, those perspectives, like reading what you talked about, the, the feeding the 5,000, like 2022, we spent most of the podcast going through, um, the book of John. We, we did several episodes, um, on John six specifically. Hmm. Uh, we've done other episodes about the feeding the 5,000 before, like we've talked about this so much. I just watched season three of the chosen recently and was digging into all the text, trying to sort out like, what, what do I think about how they, uh, what their perspective was on this? Like, I've just spent so much time on that story specifically. And then you come in with this radically different perspective that I somehow missed in all of the other <laughs> things that we talked about. So is, is there something about the Ethiopian culture that has taught you to see things in this new way? Um, uh, I mean, I don't, I suspect it's not a new way necessarily, but, uh, it's like this refreshing perspective on the scriptures, um, that somehow we've been missing, um, mm. that you have opened up to me at least, and, and hopefully, um, to many others, but yeah, like, is, is there something about the culture that has taught you to see things in this kind of, it's almost like a modern way of seeing it that, that connects it more to our current situation um, something, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to say it, but mm. it's just, it's just this perspective that I was uh, surprised to find. Hmm. Ooh, you're going to, you're going to make me stop and think here about how to answer that. Um, some, some initial thoughts. One is, um, 
you know, we learned to study the Bible by studying Greek and Hebrew and studying ancient contexts, and I've done that, and that's extremely valuable. I don't dismiss that at all. But Jesus was living and working in a high-conflict society in which identitarian conflict was really at the core. What is your ethnic identity? What is your religious identity? Who do you align with? Who do you give your loyalty to? Who are you willing to call an enemy? And who do you see as your tribe? And hmm. Ethiopia has a lot of these ident- these dynamics. It's an ancient society. It's a multi-ethnic, multicultural society with a deep sense of identity. And there's profound richness in these identities and traditions, and they should not be diminished. But when they start fueling othering in this sense that the other group, the other person, the other tradition is somehow disconnected from us or less than us, it moves in this direction that we see throughout human society. And that's this incredible sense of culture that we need to start competing for our value by diminishing you. I mean, I think this is a fundamental human temptation. If I can convince myself that I'm smarter than you, I somehow think that I'm more valuable, or we do this with money, or we do it with status, or we do it with sex, so many different ways. I think living and working in Ethiopia and seeing the richness of this ancient and complex society but also how identitarian conflict and othering becomes so uh, problematic for human flourishing has opened my life to really what was going on in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, after all, the guy wasn't just sitting around and theologizing. He was getting death threats. He was being driven out of villages. He was being refused hospitality. He was crossing all of these boundaries and befriending Samaritans and Romans and sex workers and children who had been diminished and told to leave his presence. Um, And this helps us explain, I think, in many ways, why Jesus was so loved and why he was so, why he was seen as so threatening and needing to be eliminated because he was, he was very courageously crossing these lines of who's in and who's out, who's us and who's them, who's, uh, got a connection with God and who doesn't? Jesus, Jesus was transgressing so many of these boundaries, and and so I, I wouldn't say that I have any secret sauce at all, or that I, that I have um, really anything very unique to offer. But I just say living in Ethiopia has attuned me to what if we read the Gospels more through the lens of um, how we const- how we how we develop our identities and how conflict comes out of the othering of uh, these kind of hardened identities and how violence can grow out of um, assuming that God has given us some kind of special privilege and that we're authorized to attack others. I mean, I can tell you, Brent, that the overwhelming majority of death threats that I received were from Christians. Yeah. So how do we make sense of people who are so convinced that they're aligned with the heart of God and that they're plugged into traditions that go back for thousands of years. And yet this faith is somehow not incompatible 
with threatening to run people over with cars and throw them off bridges and slaughter their bodies, I think this gives us some fresh lenses lenses into understanding what was Jesus doing? Why was it so fresh and exciting? Why was it so threatening and subversive? Why did this teacher end up getting arrested and executed? And why did ordinary people find what he was doing so compelling? And they wanted to eat meals with him. They wanted to break bread with him. They wanted to come out in isolated spaces and hear what he was thinking. Yeah. I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I think Ethiopia gives us some lenses to kind of go outside of the textbooks and some of the um, more theoretical interpretation and say, like, what was actually happening in that society? And how is it actually very similar with what's happening in society today? Yeah, for anyone who's ever thought, like, oh, the Bible is some cool stories, but how do I apply it today? Everything was different back then. I think your your writing um, gives this perspective that it is radically relevant for mm. the world today. It's beautiful. Thank you. So, Andrew, I've been dreaming a little bit since reading that. Well, while I was reading this book, I started dreaming a little bit. Um, the book was just, and I'm not just talking about like the book book. I mean, the stuff we're talking about and the way the book is simply a, a vehicle, a, a way to package the thoughts. Mm-hmm. This stuff is so applicable. I started thinking about using the book as an approach to discipling young adults. You know, I'm a president of a campus ministry organization. I'm always looking at ways to simplify like we don't need bigger, more complex programming. We need a more simple approach to, you know, spiritual formation. The way you've designed this, the way that it's rooted in Jesus's prayer, not as a, not as like a new gimmick that Andrew Decourt figured out, but like mm-hmm. it's just it's just reflecting on the Lord's prayer, uh, a way of letting that guide our spiritual formation. Like I've thought about using it almost as a curriculum. Um, when you hear that idea, is there anything that you've learned outside of what you wrote or since you've wrote it? Or is that a bad idea when you hear me saying, like, <laughs> I'm thinking about using this idea in this way? What do you think when you hear that? Mm, I mean, to be honest, Marty, I'm I'm overjoyed if if you could see it being valuable as a resource for this. Um, you know, I think Jesus' prayer is responding to seven of our most Mm-hmm. fundamental questions as human beings, and it's giving us this distilled spiritual practice in response. And if I can just mention them briefly, the first is, who is God, our Father? I call this a practice of divine belovedness. How should we talk about God? Mm. How would be your name? A practice of radical reverence. What do you want? Your kingdom come. Mm. A practice of prophetic imagination. How much is enough? Give us today our daily bread, a practice of subversive simplicity. I just want to note the linkages too. Like in the first, you're getting close to God, our Father, but you can have a false familiarity with Mm -hmm. God. So Jesus disrupts this with saying, you need to stop and say, hallowed be your name. Learn that you can never capture God, Mm -hmm. but don't get stuck in deconstruction. You need to move into this question of what do you really want? Mm -hmm. That's this invitation for the kingdom to come, but that can become so egocentric and we fall into messiah complexes and so jesus immediately roots us back in human vulnerability with this question what is enough and give us this day our daily bread but there we can fall into this 
uh, false idea that we're all, you know, just kind of happy with one another and sitting around a table with things at peace. But that's not true. There's conflict. So how do we begin again? And that's Mm -hmm. forgive us as we forgive others. I call this a practice of courageous healing. And then, you know, still, though, when we do forgiveness, we might not go deep enough into the roots Mm -hmm. of the aggression inside of us. And I mean, this gets back to what we were talking about a minute ago with temptation. And are we going to mirror conflict? Or are we going to be a premeditated presence of nonviolence in the midst of it? But even at the end, and this might be my favorite moment in the prayer, you might do all of these things and still think that Christian spirituality is ultimately about gaining power and prestige for yourself. And so I see the final kind of whispered question in Jesus' prayer, can you let go of Mm. power and prestige? And he teaches us to pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's this kind of response to these fundamental human addictions, Mm. winning, greatness, celebrity, uh, Mm. being the one who's at the center. And Jesus says, let Go of that and just say, it's all yours, God. It's this ultimate surrender. And what I think is that this spiritual practice comes straight from Jesus, Marty. Jesus said it's meant for our daily practice. Most of us have it downloaded in our memory already. And so I can't think of a better tool to cultivate our spiritual formation instead of ignoring or mindlessly reciting this one spiritual practice that Jesus designed for us, why not make it the very center of our consciousness and community? Mm. And I just add to this that we live in a time looking for shortcuts, easy answers, and quick fixes. And I'd say, what if we really need is daily practice? Like you said, not another gimmick, Mm -hmm. but daily practice. And again, that takes me back to why not do what Jesus himself did, what Jesus designed for us to do, and make this seven-part prayer the heart of our daily spiritual formation and practice. And once we allow it to enter into the cells of our bodies and our breath and to the way that we see and treat other people and the way we soak in God's presence, I really believe that it can profoundly transform our lives and it can transform our community. So I I would be overjoyed, Marty, if you see value in this book for spiritual formation for your communities. And I, I just say that what I've learned is that I need to continue practicing myself. I haven't, you know, written this book and found the silver bullet and graduated from the school of Jesus. This is a prayer that is meant for the daily cultivation in personal practice of how do I see God and how do I talk about God and what do I want? What do I consider as enough? How do I start over when I fail? How do I deal with the conflict and aggression inside of me? How do I deal with that undead ego in me that is still secretly addicted to being important and impressing other people? This is what Jesus is leading us through. And I've just learned that It's still my work to do. And so I began this morning by spending um, significant time working through each of Jesus' seven movements. And I I think that every follower of Jesus um, can really be energized by, you know, actually doing what he said to do. (laughs) Well, 
Well, I ventured back in. I asked what I thought would be a safe question, and now I'm convicted again. So, Brent, do you have do you have anything? Well, so I, I'm curious about um, if you've if you've looked into this at all. But like the tradition where I learned um, the Our Father, as we called it in that mm-hmm. tradition, as you acknowledge in your book, um, this prayer has many names and many um, many ways of of going about it. But the the tradition where I learned the Our Father, it did not have that seventh line in it. Yes. And is there is there something about that line that is so produ- provocative that um, different traditions have just not wanted to put it into practice? Mm. Um, yeah, just talk a little bit more about that, about that seventh portion and, and uh, the power that you see in that. Yes. I think that this is a brilliant practice that Jesus offers us. You know, at the beginning of Jesus' public movement, in fact, before the beginning of Jesus' public movement, he he goes out into the wilderness, he meets with his radical cousin John, who's this kind of social activist reformer figure. He's baptized. He hears God's voice through open heaven say, you're my beloved child, I delight in you. And then he goes out into the wilderness. The text says that he's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and he has this incredibly powerful encounter with the accuser, with the Satan figure, with the devil. And the devil is trying to uh, derail the beginning of Jesus' movement by getting him to make power and prestige what Jesus is really all about. And the text says that Jesus is given this kind of panoramic vision of uh, the nations of the world, and he's hearing this voice whispering inside of him. Um, all, the, all of It says all of the authority, the kingdom, the power, and the glory, all of this will be yours if you bow down and worship me. So in other words, If you say, okay, I'm going to make my life the pursuit of power, I can get it. And Jesus responds by traveling out of the wilderness, going and teaching this wildly diverse crowd of people a prayer, and concluding that prayer with this kind of brilliant subversion of the devil's temptation. Instead of saying, yep, I'm going to claim kingdom power and glory for myself, Jesus turns that temptation around into a practice of letting go of it. And I think what could be more brilliant to turn some of our deepest temptations into a kind of mnemonic device, a memory tool to say, nope, I'm letting go of that. I'm surrendering that. I'm not going to suppress it and say, no, I don't have that temptation. No, I don't have that desire. Uh, I'm not going to crumble to it and say, yep, if this is so deep-seated in me, I'm going to surrender and make my life about the pursuit of power and prestige. And we see that in so many of our celebrity pastors and ministries that have crumbled to corruption, to the abuse of power, um, to the, the kind of uh, the kind of intoxication of celebrity that comes in so much Christian culture. Jesus doesn't suppress this. He doesn't crumble to it. He very brilliantly turns it into a tool of spiritual practice to say, huh, I'm going to make the climax of my prayer a renunciation 
of this drive for kingdom power and glory by naming it and saying, God, these things are yours. And I really think that there's no accident that Jesus makes this the kind of sign-off of his prayer, because I, I think that this is really the heart of authentic flourishing. When we can get to the place where we're no longer addicted by power and prestige, by kingdom power and glory, then we have entered into true spiritual maturity, the heart of God, and we're ready to let go and to lose without fear. And this is you know, this is what we see in the life of Jesus again. He's guys, it's just so powerful. He's being crucified. The people are mocking him and saying, if God wants you, let God come and save you. I mean, it's this ultimate mockery and humiliation to say, not only are you dying, you are abandoned by God. You are unwanted. You are a loser. And what does Jesus do? He invokes the name of God and says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's another way of continuing to practice this prayer. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I don't have anything to lose. I trust that God is holding my life. And if we want to talk about conviction, I'm convicting myself right now because I (laughs) battle with that need to be important, that need to make, you know, are the people who are listening to this podcast thinking that Andrew is insightful and impressive? When Lily and I feel vulnerable, um, what are we doing to secure and protect ourselves But I think that this seven movement really is Jesus leading us into that kind of end of life, elderly wisdom that is really the heart of true childhood, this kind of radical trust in God that can say, it's yours, I can let go, I'm no longer secretly white-knuckled grasping to my own ego, Um, we're going to be okay. And that's how the prayer ends and, you know, takes us back to our Father, so I love this movement, Brent, and I, I really think that it's it's the brilliant climax of everything Jesus is asking us to practice in the prayer. Yeah, it really is beautiful. Yeah. Uh. So, uh, do we I, have enough conviction yet? <laughs> I'm getting out of here. That's what I'm doing. A- Andrew, I love to close by asking a whole set of questions. Um, yeah. and you get to pick like which question or how you want to answer this, but is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Is there a project you're working on, whether it's another book or another piece of your ministry or something like that? Is there something that you could use your help from our listeners? If they're like compelled by this work, is there something they can do to to help what you're doing? Is there something from somebody else that we need to know about? Like this is, we, we kind of end with giving you a, a, an opportunity to, to plug. This is your shot to like, give us whatever bonus content as a mm. PS stamp to our conversation <laughs> today. What would that be? Well, Marty, I really appreciate that generosity. And I just be completely transparent. The work that I do, my writing, the neighbor love movement, um, it's entirely supported and sustained by the generosity of individual people. And so um, I love the integrity of this. There's no big organization, you know, pulling strings behind us and pumping money. It's entirely supported by people who say, I believe in this. I want this vision to be promoted in our society. I'm going to get behind it. 
Mm. Um, and so that's definitely been a place where I've had to lean into that fourth movement of Jesus prayer, give us today our daily bread. Yes. And I just say, if anybody's listening to this and, and inspired by this vision, I'd love for you to consider, consider getting behind our work and you can learn more about it at iffglobal.org. That's the name of the organization um, that oversees my work and my board, iffglobal.org. Um, we'd love to invite you to journey with us to start relationship to see how you want to invest and help us sustain this work. And I just say last um, that I work, I am working on a new book. It's called "What Is Christianity: Presence, Practice, and Protest," mm. and it's really trying to do something similar to what I did with the Lord's Prayer and get back to the roots of what's really going on here and how can rediscovering it. Um, energize the practice of human flourishing. And so I think lots of people are asking, what is Christianity really? And do I want any part of it? Or am I am I done with this? Am I, am I going to actually condemn this as something that's destructive? And I want to say that um, there's incredible beauty with inside, with inside the Christian story. And I'm going to try to distill it really in three movements that revolve around seeing God as our creator. This is the This is to say that God loves us when we're nothing, seeing God as our Savior, God loves us when we're enemies, and seeing God as our Resurrector, that God loves us when we're dead. And so there's this ever-intensifying revelation of the love of God and the call to practice the love of God through the Christian story. So that's what I'm working on now. People are excited about this. Uh, Would love for them to journey with us and get behind our work. I thank you for the opportunity to share that. Absolutely. And and your book... Uh, like if if people do nothing else, like just please read "Flourishing on the Edge of Faith" because this this is an incredible book. And I uh, like I my I have a four year old and a two year old, and uh, I've been like thinking about ways to like how do I develop practices with them and and teach them something. And I, I love the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer, and and then yet yeah, your book like just demonstrates the absolute depth that is also within that, this simple practice. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, Marty's talking about using it with students. I, I'm thinking about using it with my kids like hmm. this. I think it's, I think it's so applicable and so accessible. Um, so yeah, I would encourage people to do that for sure. Um, we also have your, your website, uh, andrew-decourt.com. Uh, is there any other way that people should find you or get connected besides that? Yeah, I'd love for people to stop by my website. I'd love it if you'd shoot me an email. I'm at andrew.d.decourt at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out. And if you're on Facebook, I write uh, almost daily on Facebook and share more spontaneous reflections there. So be happy to meet up there. Beautiful. Well, I will have all of that in our show notes. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us and um, sharing your life and sharing your work. Yeah, Andrew, thanks for yeah, thanks for being on here with us. It was a great book. It was a great conversation. And just appreciate what you're doing. Keep doing your part. We'll do ours. Thank you so much, brothers. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Blessings to you and everyone who's listening to it. May we flourish as we pray with Jesus. And you'll find those show notes and uh, everything else you need to to find about us at bamadiscipleship.com. So thanks to all of you listeners for joining us. We will talk to you again soon.